Welcome back to Atomic Hobo. We're doing another one of our Four Minutes of Threads episodes where we scrutinise the nuclear war film Threads in minute, obsessive, weird detail. Today we start at 32 minutes in and Clive Sutton, our calm and avuncular leader of Sheffield Council, is interrupted at his desk by a phone call. It's that phone call. The one he has no doubt been expecting and dreading. It's the call from London telling him it's time to activate the bunker. It's game on. Despite the phone call, Sutton doesn't panic. He doesn't even look worried or flustered. No, he just looks sad, regretful, resigned. Perhaps in a lesser film, he'd be shown at his desk, tie askew, chewing his way through his 17th cigarette, sweat beading his forehead. Perhaps he'd be snapping at the secretary and demanding more coffee. But you don't get a peep of this from Big Clive. He's immaculate in his suit, hair perfectly smooth, and his only reaction to hearing of the activation of the bunkers is to look sadly at the photographs on his desk of his wife and one of a baby. And also, on the left of the screen, he has a framed photograph of two dogs. Well, initially to me they looked like two teddy bears, but after I put my glasses on and consulted people on Twitter, we worked out they're probably West Highland Terriers. (laughs) So he's looking at the people and animals that he loves. Wife, kids, and more importantly, the dogs. And the sense of regret and sadness comes through in his question to the person on the phone. He says... Yes, I understand. Do I have to go right away? No? When? Yes, I see. That's a painful question. Do I have to go right away? Oh, Mr Sutton, there's just no time left. No time for anything now you might wish to do, whether it's last looks at home or one last chance to bathe the baby in the picture and smell the Johnson's baby powder on their warm little scalp. There's no time now. I get the same feeling later in the film when the siren goes off and amidst all the panicking and running, we see a police car start its siren and race off down the street and I think, where are you trying to get to? It's all over now. There is no more time. So, kind and calm, Mr Clive Sutton, you have to go. Not right away, but now you need to pack your bag, make your calls and get ready to go down those steps to the bunker. On his desk, beside the framed photo of the family and the little dogs, there's also a copy of the Times, 
the headline of which is Road Links to Berlin Are Cut. Now that's of course the ultimate sign that things are kicking off. When it starts to go wrong in Berlin, you know you're in a crisis. The trouble in the film which began in Iran is inching closer and closer to us, creeping into Europe and across the continent to Sooty Sheffield. Of course, in the Cold War, Berlin was always the flashpoint. Khrushchev famously described the city as the testicles of the West, saying, every time I want to make the West scream, I squeeze on Berlin. And think of all the various Berlin crises we had through the Cold War, the Berlin blockade, the Berlin airlift, the Berlin crisis, the Berlin wall. So yes, that headline in the paper lying on Clive Sutton's desk tells us all we need to know. It's now hitting Berlin. While Mr Sutton is, of course, painfully aware of what's going on, he's the leader of the council, that's his job, the next scene gives us a glimpse of civilian life where, incredibly, Jimmy and his pal are at work at the joinery and just bumbling on as normal. Then we see a column of ambulances silently leaving the hospital grounds. They're being dispersed prior to the attack, just as the fire engines were in an earlier scene. And they're leaving without fanfare, no sirens, no fuss, just quietly getting themselves out of the main target area. As they depart, they carry out their last peacetime duty, which is to help empty the hospitals. In reality, ambulances would be assisted in this duty by the St John and St Andrew ambulances, plus private taxis and buses. Anything that can take patients home and drop them off at their door, empty the hospitals as far as possible. And yes, we know that the St John's Ambulance Brigade are indeed helping because we see the eight-pointed cross of the St John Ambulance on the white apron of one of the helpers. Relatives would also be called upon to help empty the hospitals. You would be called and asked to come and collect your relative. And I've read that social workers and volunteers from the good old Women's Royal Voluntary Service, they'd help and there would be possible help from scouts and guides, all to be used in getting frail and recovering patients out of hospital and back home. Emptying the hospitals was done so that there would be, in theory, room to treat military or civilian casualties from any conventional war which might erupt before things went nuclear. That was, of course, one of the scenarios that the government held to in their nuclear war planning. It was their most useful scenario because by having a conventional war beforehand, you're able to put into place your nuclear planning, all of which you can't do if all you get is a four-minute warning. So by emptying your hospitals, it makes room for any incoming patients from a conventional war but it also allows you to disperse a lot of your staff and equipment and ambulances to safer places. More info on that in my episodes called The Nuclear NHS and The Doctor Won't See You. And I can tell you that the NHS chapter in my book is one of the grimmest that I've ever written. Very, very disturbing, as expected. The clearing of the hospitals is a sad thing. As we know from previous scenes and threads, that a lot of families are evacuating the city. So the implication there is that some of these 
old or frail patients who are now being released back into the care of their family might find the family gone. Or, having rearranged the house in accordance with protecting survive advice, they might not have room for a sick or elderly relative. Or they might not want the burden of caring for such a person during a war. After all, Protect and Survive advises us to gather first aid supplies for the fallout room, but has nothing to say about caring for someone under fallout conditions who is in remission from cancer or who has severe dementia. That would be a mammoth task at any time, let alone during a war. Now, it's true the NHS guidelines didn't say that everyone would be cleared from hospitals. Those in desperate need of care would be retained, either in the hospital or dispersed to another care setting. But as the scenes and threads show, lots of sick and frail people are being cast out. And if you don't have a family ready and able to receive you, then you're in a lot of trouble. At Ruth's house, a big posh Victorian villa overlooking a park, we see that her gran is being helped up the stairs by Mr and Mrs Beckett. So this is one elderly lady who's lucky enough to have a caring family with a big house so they can take her in. And her luck lasts for... Mm, a couple of more days. In the park outside Ruth's house, Endcliff Park, um, for Threads location spotters, you might like to know that Ruth's house is on Rustlings Road. And it looks onto Endcliff Park. I believe in previous episodes about Thread, we've discussed the memorial in Endcliff Park to a wartime bomber which crashed there. And in the park, we see a swan gliding silently over the pond. A very serene image, of course. But over that image, we have a radio announcer telling us harshly that the roads are very busy. The AA and RAC have reported heavy congestion on roads up and down the country, particularly those leading to Wales and the West Country. The police are urging motorists not to travel unless absolutely necessary, and if it is essential, to use only minor roads and leave motorways and intercity trunk routes clear for official traffic. We see more and more cars laden with luggage heading out of Sheffield. This is contrary to government advice, of course, which is that we stay put... But um, at this point in the crisis, Protect and Survive hasn't yet been broadcast. So people are still taking their chances. They're getting out of the city. When Protect and Survive does come out, it will make clear that... If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. But of course, whether the advice had been released or not, it's human nature to try and flee a perceived danger. People will always try and run, despite a little orange government booklet telling you otherwise. And of course that's why, later in the film, we see roads being closed off to civilian traffic. Because people are trying to flee. And that's against government advice and against government wishes. Of course all that traffic means a rising demand for petrol, 
and we see footage of huge queues forming at petrol stations. And shortly after that, we see signs going up saying closed. The authorities have begun closing them down and guarding them. The fuel stocks are now for official use only. And that would be a police duty in the run-up to nuclear war, guarding essential stocks such as food and fuel. And of course, if you run out of police officers to do such a task, you might hand a gun to your local traffic warden and rope him into helping. Another police duty at this time would be to round up any subversives. And yes, we see the left-wing woman in the woolly hat and poncho who was giving an anti-war speech earlier in the film. She is being politely but firmly guided into the back seat of a Ford Escort. And that's the last we see of her. There's also a very quick glance at a crowd of people gathered round a handheld radio. Uh, the tranny or the wireless, as my granddad would have called it. This is a reminder, of course, that these people in the early 80s had no smartphones. So how do you get your news if you're out and about? It'd be a case of stopping at a window of Dixon's to see the TVs, or in this case, gathering round a radio. In fact, that's how I got my information about 9-11. Even then, as late as 2001, I found myself relying on the radio. Of course, we had internet then, obviously, but I'm sure you'll all remember that. The internet was so clogged that you couldn't easily reach any news websites. I was in the West End of Glasgow at the time on Ashton Lane. I was a student at the time, happy days. And uh, my dad phoned me on the mobile and he said... He sounded a bit panicked, of course. I assume he was at home watching it on TV. He said, um, they've blown up the World Trade Centre. And I, I admit, that didn't really... I didn't understand the, the panic in Dad's voice because, you know, memories of the IRA, etc. were still very fresh. And I thought, well, that happens. Terrorists blow things up. That's just a horrible fact of modern life. I couldn't understand why Dad was so crazy panicked about it. Oh my God, oh my God, they've blown up the World Trade Centre. And when he said World Trade Centre, I didn't understand. I, I didn't picture the... If he'd said Twin Towers, then I'd have realised, oh God, that's quite something. But when he said World Trade Centre, I just pictured vaguely some office block somewhere in America. So I don't mean to offend anyone, but when Dad said they've blown up the World Trade Centre, I thought, okay, that, that's awful, but does that justify all the panic in Dad's voice? I was in the Grovner Cafe at the time and I, I put the phone down and um, got on with my lunch it would have been and of course gradually throughout the cafe other people were receiving phone calls and they were more attentive more intelligent perhaps than I was because they were having the proper reaction they were taking calls and they were shocked and they were stunned and everyone was began talking about it I thought oh, okay I've, I've obviously missed something here in dad's call didn't have a smartphone in those days I just had one of those wee silly Nokias that you would play snake on so um I quickly ran up to the university, to the Adam Smith building, went into one of the computer labs and tried to log on to the BBC News website. Because by now it was obvious that something was going on. But I couldn't get onto the website because, as you all know, internet traffic was insane. And by now I was horribly anxious something was going on and I couldn't find out what it was. I knew it was something big and it was something terrifying. It wasn't, pardon me if I sound callous here, but it wasn't just another bomb. Of course it wasn't a bomb at all, but that's what Dad had told me. So um, I was a bit frightened, a bit worried, uh, uh, curious of course, I wanted to know what was going on and the internet had just collapsed, couldn't even get as far as the BBC News front page, so I 
sounds a bit melodramatic, I suppose, but I got a taxi, a black taxi, down on Byers Road, and I went home to my grand's house in, in Spittle. And I just thought, okay, if I go home, we can, you know, put the news on, put News 24 on, find out what's going on. And in the taxi, the driver had the radio on. And he was saying, oh, hen, have you heard about blah, blah, blah. And that's how I found out, found out what happened, through the radio. So even though it was 2001, I was getting my news the same way these people were in threads, gathering round a radio. But anyway, back to the film. <laughs> so um, seeing these blokes gathered round a radio in the street shows us that the news was fast moving. You couldn't do as you would in normal times, which is, okay, I'd like to know what's going on in the world today. Well, when I get home tonight and have my dinner... I'll put on the six o'clock news and catch the headlines. The news, of course, at this stage in proceedings was too fast moving for that. You couldn't wait till the six o'clock headlines. You had to know in real time. And so you gathered around the radio, which sounds old fashioned even for 1984. It sounds like something you'd have done during the, the Second World War. You know, that famous image of families huddled around the radio listening to Winston Churchill. But here they were doing it in 1984. Or 1983, which is when I believe Threads was supposed to have been set. But then, as I say, there I was in 2001 doing the same thing, getting my news by listening to the radio. Other methods of technology had failed me, but the good old radio still worked. Now, the next scene is quite chilling. The roads have been closed. The, 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 the main roads, the motorways. Police checkpoints have been set up at the motorways, which... By the way, are no longer called motorways. They are now essential service routes. These roads are now reserved for official use only. And that has two purposes. One, it allows the authorities fast and easy travel on empty roads. And two, it pens in the population. No more scattering and fleeing and chaotic self-evacuation. But what about those who are determined to try it? We see the neighbour of Mr Kemp, who of course was packing up the family and planning to leave without his dog, intending to travel east across the country to reach his relative in Lincolnshire. Well, he stopped at the police checkpoint and he's indignant that the police are refusing him access to the motorway. We're trying to get across to relatives in Lincolnshire. Not this way, you're not. Essential service on all of this road. You'll have to find another route, I'm afraid. Well, that's bloody ridiculous. You can't just stop people like that. Uh, excuse me, where are you going? This suggests that even though he's fleeing Sheffield, he still hasn't quite grasped how serious this all is. He still protests. You can't do that. So obviously he doesn't realise that, yes, by this point the authorities can do as they please. He still thinks this is polite, law-abiding Britain where people obey the rules and the friendly Bobby will nod you through. As he grumbles at the policeman, we... Catch a glimpse of his wife's face in the back seat. Ah, she seems to have finally realised what's going on. Earlier, when they were packing to leave, she was the grumbler, she was the moaner, she was complaining, this is silly, this is a fuss over nothing, nothing will happen. But now, she seems to realise. Now her face is tight and drawn and anxious. In the car, stuck at the checkpoint, we see it dawn on her. It's a strange scene, even though the action taking place is frightening, basically the people are being penned up in the cities to await the nuclear blast, and even though a sinister loudspeaker voice is droning out orders and instructions, the policemen themselves are friendly. They're still the 
cheery local bobbies that so many of us seem to remember from the good old days. Now, what does that mean? Are they being ultra polite and on purpose in order to keep people calm? Are they in ignorance at the seriousness of the situation? Well, hardly. If they're setting up roadblocks, they must know this is big. Maybe. Maybe they're just good blokes. Anyway, the officer at the car gives the family a bit of helpful advice on an alternative route across country to Lincolnshire, and that's the last we see of that family. Of mum, dad, daughter, spot the dog, a load of luggage and a horrible estate car. But we can guess what happens to them. They've been sent on an alternative route across the country into Lincolnshire. With all the major roads closed, we can assume everyone else will be piling onto that road too. And as has been noted before, that will probably create gridlock. All these alternative routes and small roads can't cope with the dispersed motorway traffic. That's why we have motorways, to handle all of that. So if you turn everyone off the motorways and onto these alternative roads, you'll surely create gridlock. The cars will be stuck in an endless traffic jam. They will effectively block the roads. So the authorities, they've blocked the motorways, but they don't need to block all the alternative routes out of the cities. The fleeing public will do that for them. We are now at Wednesday, 25th of May, and a news report tells us there are reports of two explosions in the Middle East. Now, the, the vague language here, you know, there are reports of nuclear explosions, suggests to me that they are tactical nuclear explosions. And of course, that's how the thinking goes, um, that whenever a tactical nuclear weapon is used in anger, it will, the conflict will inevitably escalate into all-out nuclear war. Before the idea of tactical nuclear weapons arose, if we reel back to the very early Cold War, of course, it was only America who had nuclear weapons, and so they had a policy of massive retaliation. If you do anything nasty to us, we will hit you with everything. And that was called massive retaliation. The problem with that policy was it left you with no options. It was all or nothing. Whether the Soviets have rolled into Western Europe or just thumbed their nose at you. Massive retaliation demands that you go all out, you go nuts, you throw everything at them. Arguably it made sense in the early Cold War when America was the sole nuclear power and could keep everyone in check by threatening massive retaliation. The other benefit of that strategy was that America didn't need to fork out on a huge army of troops and conventional weapons. You could just sit back and say, massive retaliation. But of course then the Soviets acquired nuclear weapons and of course since 1955 they had hydrogen bombs. And that meant that, for the Americans, massive retaliation could be thrown right back at them. So it was time to look for an alternative strategy. Massive retaliation also took a bit of a beating when the Soviets shocked everyone by launching Sputnik. Because this suggested that maybe the old commies were more technologically advanced than we'd realised. So what else might they have up their Soviet sleeves? This doubt was worsened by Khrushchev's boasts, later shown to be a big fat lie, that they were producing more nuclear missiles in America, leading to American fears that there was a missile gap. So massive retaliation was looking a bit outdated. America needed ideas which would have allowed for more flexibility. 
And so Henry Kissinger popped up with the idea, which now seems crazy, that a nuclear war needn't mean total annihilation. We could perhaps engage in limited nuclear wars, polite nuclear wars, where both sides would play by the rules, the rules being no hydrogen bombs, only use small tactical nukes, and don't target any cities out with 500 miles of the battlefield. A small, limited nuclear war like this would give both sides time to stop and think and reconsider. And maybe to come to agreement with one another. Now, of course, (laughs) Henry Kissinger knows a tad more about nuclear strategy than me, but I just cannot accept the concept of a limited nuclear war. Surely a tactical nuclear war will always escalate. And that's why it's so important that we we never use a nuclear weapon, whether it's a monstrous hydrogen bomb or a cute little tactical nuke. You must never break the nuclear taboo, because that would be like opening Pandora's box. Once you've done it, then all hell would break loose. You'll have crossed the line. That was something, of course, that Trump didn't seem to understand when he asked, what's the point of having them if you can't use them? They're there to deter war. They're not there to be used. They're there to deter, to be silently terrifying, silently deterring war through their very horror. And so, no, I can't accept the notion of limited nuclear war using small tactical nukes. To me, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. This is one instance where size doesn't matter. And so from nuclear strategy, let's go back to the domestic. We leave this clip to see Clive Sutton in his office. He's on the phone as usual, hard at work. And across the room is his wife, Marjorie, packing shirts for him, as though she's sending him off on a business trip. She has neat blue shirts, perfectly ironed and folded. Arguably not the best type of gear for a bunker, where it's often, I found, quite chilly down there. Although, of course, he isn't going into a proper bunker, just a basement space below the council offices. But still, neat iron shirts. I'd rather have layers, vests, t-shirts, jumpers, and some comfortable jogging trousers or cargo pants. Or actually, forget it, Marjorie, just pack me some booze and pills. But Marjorie is doing the typical wifely duty of packing and ironing and getting things in order for her husband to send him off on his duty. Maybe she finds comfort in that. Maybe this is her way of trying to convince herself that everything will be alright. Because how can there be burning nuclear holocaust if I'm ironing pale blue shirts for Clive? Now, is he doing the right thing here by pretending to Marjorie that it's all okay? Wouldn't he have done better to have said, woman, drop those shirts, get in the car and drive? But then, maybe it's too late for that. The roads are closed, as we know. So maybe all he can do is lull her fears, let her iron and fold, and maybe find a bit of peace in that domestic routine. And as they have a tender little chat about his shirts and whether he's had a shave that day, and does he really have to go, he's interrupted by the phone. And this time on the call... Our cam, Mr. Sutton, begins to show a little bit of stress. Well, use your common sense, man. Why should I know? 
But oh, Clive's a good guy. He turns from the phone and, at this point, late in the day, suggests softly and calmly that maybe Marjorie should just leave the shirts and perhaps get home. Then he does something very sad indeed. Uh, By this point, I've gone over my four minutes. I've strayed into the next four minutes, but I thought it made sense to finish the scene. Clive does something very sad. As he's smiling at Marjorie and gently suggesting that perhaps she should get off home, he turns away and he picks up his photographs off her from the desk and he puts them in his briefcase. Photos of her, photos of the kids, puts them into the briefcase. The one that he'll be taking with him into the bunker. Now, why would he do that if he knows it's all just a precaution and he'll be seeing them all in a day or two? He's sending the real Marjorie away and keeping hold of a photograph of her. Although, (laughs) notice he doesn't put the photo of his wee dogs in the briefcase too. Well, that's fine. Wow, long episode today. That's because it's all really starting to heat up in threads. Remember, you can support me on Patreon if you enjoy the podcast. I'm delighted to have some new patrons this week one of whom has a uh, long, charming name for me to read out. (laughs) Let me say thank you to Mark Brooker, Gareth Cartew, and Electrical Tentacled Chastity Asteroid Delta. Our asteroid dude also got in touch to recommend that we look at the strange nuclear war film Miracle Mile. Uh, We certainly will one day, although I'm thinking the next nuclear film we'll look at is 13 Days as there's a new book coming out soon about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's brought that back into my uh, attention. It was available on Netflix. I'm sure it was floating around on Netflix for months and months, but when I checked a couple of days ago, it vanished. So I've had to order an old DVD from Amazon. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you to all my patrons. If you want to support me, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can choose which amount you want to contribute each month. And I will be back next Monday with another episode.